Hello everyone. Welcome to our Arabic Cafe podcast, a podcast supported by IEEE Circuit and System Society and IEEE Sensors Council. Thanks, Hadi. This is a podcast about all things engineering, and we're going to discuss things like professional issues, how to get ahead with your career, technology and science, and industry and research. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our first podcast. We're really excited to have you here and joining us today. We are hoping that we're going to get you interested in some things about IEEE sensors and IEEE CAS. We're going to start off with a discussion topic with all of our hosts here today, and they're all going to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about the disruptions that have been facing our lives. So I guess the question we're going to start with discussing today is how is everyone coping with the disruption posed by COVID? Uh, and what are the, some of the lessons that we've learned and some of the tips that we can pass on to all of you lovely people who are joining us today for the first time? Hello, everyone. I'm Hadi. I'm uh, from University of Glasgow in Scotland. I'm Board of Governor for IEEE Circuit and System uh, Society. We are uh, very happy and it's our pleasure today to have uh, Dr. Amara Amara, who is the our president in IEEE Circuit and System Society today. Thanks, Hadi. Uh, my name is Bruce Hecht. I'm a Systems Design and Management Fellow at MIT. I'm also an entrepreneur based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I'm interested in the field of systems and learning. So I'm very excited about what we're going to hear today and how uh, is learning itself being changed at this time when it's very difficult to go into classrooms or labs, and how do we get the experience of learning at the same time that we have to change our experience of learning. So it's wonderful to have uh, Professor Amara Amara with us, who's uh, one of the leaders I've been involved with IEEE in many ways, including a member of the CAST Society and also with IEEE Sensors Council. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, I'm Aisha Youssef. I am a data science manager for Accenture based out of Detroit, Michigan. Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, that you know we're going to be talking about how everybody is impacted and co- during the COVID era, um, you know it's kind of funny because as a data scientist, it doesn't really impact my life that much <laughs> in terms of you know being able to work from home anytime I want to. Um, but I do miss going to the office. Um, but I'm very excited today to you know talk about how this is impacting the lives of you know people who might be working in a lab. Um, or just, you know, what are, what is the impact of this is going to be on the society as a whole after this era is over. So I'm really glad everybody could join us today and looking forward to talking to Dr. Amara. Uh, thank you, Aisha. Uh, uh, I am Amara. I'm president of uh, the CAS uh, Society. I'm starting my term. Uh, I was professor in an engineering school in Paris for, for a long time, for 25 years. And then I decided to, 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 to leave the school and to join uh, an international NGO named Teldesom. It's a Swiss uh, NGO, and I'm working in uh, Lausanne uh, in Switzerland, uh, but living in the other side of the Lake uh, Lemont. So I cross uh, every day, I cross, uh, uh, I cross the lake to go to, to my office. So I have, I say, always say that I have two crews per day and I'm happy. I'm really very happy. And thank you for the invitation 
to to participate uh, to to this podcast so to 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 be to be honest i uh, underestimated this pandemic when uh, when uh, it started in uh, uh, more or less in february in europe so i realized really the danger when uh, in march i responded to an invitation to give a talk at uh, the regional meeting of uh, region 9 in uh, lima uh, peru I think I left from uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris on the 11th with the idea of staying a few days more and visiting the Machu Picchu after my talk. So the meeting started on 12 and I gave my talk. On 13th morning, I found a letter in my room signed by uh, the hotel manager and explaining that most of the international flights will be canceled in the coming days and all the guests who arrived a few days ago from France, Spain, Germany, and Italy will be put in, in, in quarantine. So this was good news after two days, after two days in Lima. So my host came to my room, the person who was organizing, he's in fact the, the, uh, the director of uh, Region 9. And he came to my room and gave me one hour to pack my suitcase. He called the taxi and we went to the airport without checking out uh, in the hotel. I stayed there in the airport for a few hours and I was happy at the end to find the flight the same day for Paris. And the same story happened to Manuel. Manuel is the CAS president-elect who also was planning to attend this uh, regional meeting. So, but he, he arrived a few days before me and he had the, the chance to to visit the Machu Picchu. But he arrived from Machu Picchu uh, in the morning and in the afternoon also he, he left to the, uh, to the airport uh, to, uh, and fortunately he also found a flight uh, the same day to, 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 to go back to Spain. So uh, regarding the pandemic, uh, the impact of the pandemic on my work, I can say it's not important because I already, as I mentioned, I left uh, uh, the engineering school I was working in and I joined uh, an international NGO and I was working already most of the time from from home. So it, 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 did, it didn't really impact that much my, uh, uh, my work. However, it impacted my term as president. <laughs> I was expecting to start my term with the formal implementation of our strategic plan. I will have the chance to talk more about our strategic plan. But in fact, uh, I started my term responding to the most urgent. Uh, once back from Lima, my first action was to organize an extraordinary meeting of the XCOM to take some uh, decisions regarding our conferences. Uh, regarding our uh, distinguished lecture and uh, industry distinguished lecture program and all other uh, event, live events we organize uh, every, every day, every year. And uh, also we took some decision regarding uh, the budget monitoring. So that's how I started my term as president of the CAS Circuit and System Society. What an incredible story, Dr. Amara, to have been caught abroad, right, as this was all kicking off as well. I think loads of us have had very similar experiences, either with travel plans that we've had to reconsider or um, completely changing the way the way we meet with people and the way we work. Um, has Have other people really 
found that it's impacted the way you've been meeting and traveling and conducting your jobs? Yeah, so actually, I was also at an IEEE meeting <laughs> in March. Um, so it was IEEE's um, Educational Activities Board meeting. So um, when I arrived, I know that a lot of people had canceled their flights coming into the meeting because the quarantine had already, you know, started impacting, you know, the rest of the world further east from the U.S., even though we hadn't had shut down in the U.S. at that point. Um, but it was very strange um, to be in a room with everybody and everybody was just being really far away from each other. Nobody was shaking hands. Um, you know, IEEE did provide all hand sanitizers and everything during the meeting. So it's very different um, from typical IEEE meetings where there's like, you know, no greeting and stuff. Um, but in terms of at least being able to do the work. I mean, I'm really happy to see that, you know, we are much more technologically connected than before. So it hasn't really impacted any of my work in IEEE committees. It's just disappointing to not be able to see people in person, I think. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think a lot of meetings and stuff, because the world is is increasingly international. So we all have, I guess, these technologies that we use on a fairly regular basis to to kind of connect with people in different time zones and countries. It is tough not to meet with people on a regular basis and and get that FaceTime in with them, that personal kind of moment to be able to catch up with them, not on Zoom. Bruce, how has it affected your working? Yeah, it's a very interesting situation. I think the work, you know, that's on the scheduled agenda, we have ways to do that. Often people would be connected in, you know, from different sites, whether it's in the workplace or in our volunteer activities. And But uh, sometimes the real work gets done in the hallways uh, or after hours. So how do you do that? It's not the same if even if you say, gee, meet me and, you know, we'll get together. Uh, it just ends up being, you know, the continuation of the agenda. So I'm excited to find out, you know, when you've got uh, new requirements, new needs, right? It, then you've got the opportunity for invention. Uh, I was just reading a story this morning from uh, Tom Malone at MIT. He built a system for mingling, you know, for how do you have the chance encounters? And he's planning to use that before his classes start with the official class. So maybe I'll have the opportunity to try it. And I'm also interested, you know, to see uh, what what does this mean for technology and when does it make sense to get everyone together, you know, at the same time. Um, one other aspect that I think is interesting is the time zones. So when you went to a conference, of course, you have to be there physically in the space. Like we're hearing the stories of our some of the opportunities we had to participate in. But you're also with people in the same time zone. Even if you're jet lagged, you're still going to get up maybe and have a morning coffee and breakfast or coffee break, all those things. But what happens, you know, now everyone is dialing in from their own home maybe and whatever time it is there. And for some people, it could be the middle of the night. So uh, how is that going to evolve? And are we going to end up with situations where you need your own room zone, kind of like a casino where you modify those conditions in order to synchronize yourself with another person? Uh, so I'm excited to see what might come out of that. And maybe someone that's listening to this program is going to have an idea that they're going to propose. So it's an opportunity to innovate. I think there's some really good points there. For example, with conferences and and stuff, I think it's it's been a massive shift, right? From from having everybody fly in from all over the world to suddenly trying to organize them all digitally. And I can imagine it must have been quite challenging um, to make some of those decisions. Uh, 
I guess, uh, Amara and Dr. Amara in your, in your work as president, uh, do you think that, uh, having the conferences go digital is something that will continue past COVID? Will it have a longer term impact or, uh, will it, will it kind of stop after this? Yeah, I think uh, many of our activities will uh, will change in uh, in the future. For example, when uh, I told you the story of uh, DMI, and when I came back, uh, I organized this uh, extraordinary XCOM meeting, and uh, my our first decision was to not cancel, to not approve any cancellation of CAS conference and. Uh, Hadi knows about it. He, he, he suggested to cancel uh, ICECS. He's organizing this year, and but we, we, did, we recommended to, to at least uh, wait for, uh, for a while and see what is uh, going to happen. But uh, most of our conferences, in fact, uh, moved to virtual to virtual conferences. Even the largest one is CAS. Uh, usually we have... Uh, uh, 1,000, around one, uh, 1,200 uh, participants, 1,200 to 1,500 participants uh, per year, and this year, this time, it's uh, it's going to be to be virtual. We extended the day, the number of days, and the, the, all the other conferences, in fact, uh, will uh, will be will take place, uh, but uh, in uh, with a virtual or blended format. This was the first decision we have taken, and probably, probably in the future we can uh, probably we will use this uh, blended format. Even if the pandemic uh, is over, we'll try for some conferences uh, to to use this blended format because uh, not all the people can travel, especially people from underserved countries. They can not afford to 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 travel and attend different conferences. We will give them. The, the chance to attend some uh, some sessions and to have uh, very very low uh, registration fees uh, for uh, for uh, for them i think blended format will be one of uh, one of the change in our conferences the second big decision we have taken was regarding our distinguished lecture uh, programs so usually the the speakers in our programs they travel all around the world to give this uh, to give their lectures and they interact directly with our members or non-members during the presentation during the talks so what we decided this year we uh, to not we decided to not cancel the uh, the deal but uh, to change the format so we i asked the chair to to, uh, to reorganize the uh, the talks in uh, in uh, in groups of three to four talks and make them uh, and provide them to our uh, members and non-members in the form of uh, uh, of uh, virtual distinguished lecture lectures so we had uh, one, uh, the first one was on uh, AI machine learning. We had four, uh, four speakers. Uh, we, uh, we had 100, 120 participants to the, to the webinars. At the same time, we were broadcasting the, uh, 
the webinar uh, in uh, using uh, Facebook, and we had almost six thousand people that uh, that uh, that uh, views the the videos. This is very successful way we uh, we, we tried to to keep our program running. We had the second series on uh, on the bio bio devices and applications, and in September we'll start the third series analog integrated circuit design. Uh, and in the future, I think we will keep this blended format. We'll not have only face to face distinguished lectures, but we can have both. We, we can uh, have one distinguished lecture uh, speaker that can give one uh, one talk probably face-to-face -face, and another one in uh, the virtual format. These are two big changes in our way to, to run our uh, activities in CAS. It's nice to hear that there's been so much uptake in, in kind of the virtual format events and stuff though as well. And I guess it's, it's not just something that's going to impact conferences and things either. I guess, Hadi, you must have had some experience with transitioning to kind of blended formats or virtual formats in teaching and things as well, right? Right. Actually, um, yeah, as Amara mentioned, you know, uh, so regarding the IEEE activities, we, uh, you know, moved the, our conference, uh, ICECS. So uh, I am a co-general chair for the ICECS this year that will be in Glasgow in November. So we had this struggle how to manage, you know, um, and organize this conference because it's a, it's a Region 8 flagship and quite, you know, important for the circuit and system society. So uh, at the beginning, we tried to, maybe we can move it to the next year, but uh, it was very important for the, conf for the society to reorganize it actually uh, this year on time. So that's why we uh, moved to the hybrid format. So still we are uh, we are on the hybrid format, but by end of this month, we will decide and we will go probably to the fully virtual. So uh, during this um, actually time, we tried to advertise more and more we knew that people are at home, not working very active in the lab. Uh, but hopefully with the uh, our uh, team, we could attract enough paper, uh, you know, to continue the success of the last years. Regarding the teaching, uh, also we had the same uh, uh, issue. So we moved to, the, to a hybrid, actually, learning uh, methods. So um, actually the interesting things I... Uh, um, you know, during the last semester, I was supposed to teach in China, so in Chengdu, in a UESTC college. Uh, so um, what will happen, we totally moved to uh, uh, to online format, and we tried to make uh, several, uh, you know, uh, several uh, techniques like, you know, recording the video, working with the students, you know, organizing several tutorial sessions, and yeah, we tried to make uh, online teaching and it was really good experience. Although for the first time it was difficult, but uh, in future, actually this will be a very effective, I suppose, to use both online and in person because we received more questions actually. And this shows that students, you know, um, offline, they can uh, look at the video and they can, you know, uh, uh, 
inquire any questions that they have. It's really interesting how how moving online can completely change uh, kind of the dyna- dynamics and interactions of 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 people learning and people attending conferences and meetings and stuff. But I guess I guess the virtual transition isn't the only impact that COVID has had. Um, I mean, I've had to renegotiate how I lay out my days and my weeks. Has anybody else had to kind of redefine how they set expectations and productivity? Um, how have how has the rhythm of your kind of normal week or your normal work life changed over the past half a year? Well, it's an interesting question, but I feel like uh, the future, you know, there's this famous quote that the future has arrived, but it's not equally distributed. So in some ways, I feel like being immersed in technology and technology world, uh, a lot of the work, you know, gets done with partners, you know, in different places. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see, you know, what was an unusual, you know, way of getting things done, you know, now is being adopted by basically everybody. Um, but I'm trying to think, you know, is there an example to follow your question, Nikki, about, you know, what has changed? Um I, I don't, I'm trying to think what's a good example, but I, I feel like maybe it's more about like what's going to change. And we don't really know because if we look back to, uh, you know, February and March, you know, it was a question of kind of like planes, similar to what happened when the volcano erupted in Europe a few years ago. You know, there was um, this issue of particles and so it wasn't safe to fly planes. So a lot of European flights and flights between Europe and North America were canceled. So bringing the whole system, you know, to a close. But then uh, there's this idea also, you know, in systems thinking, right? You know, closing things is somewhat of a simple action, uh, but starting them up again is more complex. So now thinking about the, the upcoming time, you know, there's so many more questions and some unknowns, right? We know like what was the mix. We talk about hybrid events and hybrid events in some ways, it's more complex than either an in-person event, which itself can be a large, you know, uh, a lot of work to organize or a fully digital event, which itself can be challenging. But then if you want to do both, now you've, you've built something that's yet more, has more complexity to it. Uh, so that's, a, there's a lot of reasons why that should be interesting going forward. So I'm, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to find out. Okay. So just kind of going in a different direction to answer your question, Nikki, <laughs> in terms of like the day-to-day rhythms, I think like I really had to, um, you know, it's been nice having, um, you know, being, it's, it's been nice being virtually connected and having everything available, being able to do the work. But, you know, just for the day-to-day rhythm, I think it's been very different because I feel like you know, if I'm just working from home all day, I'm not moving around that much like I would at an office, you know, to get up, go to the cafeteria, um, you know, and oftentimes, you know, if you're going to the cafeteria to get coffee, you'll have like your coworkers with you and you'll talk to them. So I think now um, I've had to adopt a little bit just, you know, during my work day at home, I try to make sure I have like breaks to walk around. Um, oftentimes I'll take break from work for a couple minutes just to, you know, instant message one, one of the coworkers just to kind of say hi or text them. You know, we've also tried to organize, you know, like virtual happy hours or something like that. So everybody's connected face to face. You still kind of have those relationships going. Um, 
I've also started doing this thing where um, when I wake up in the morning, um, you know, I get dressed like I would to go to work. Um, so it feels like, you know, I'm working and it's, it's, you know, it kind of puts me in that mindset that I have to get work done. Um, so just, you know, a couple adaptations for on the day to day basis. Yeah, I completely understand that. I I started so uh, throughout lockdown here in England, um, we were locked down for about uh, two ish months, I guess, um, maybe a little bit less. But uh, my office and everything was in my same room. So similar to you that like, sorry, my office was in the same room where I was sleeping. So similar to you, I got into habits of just kind of sitting in the same room for long periods of time without taking the kind of natural breaks that I would in the office to go get coffee or something like that. So I've had to redesign that um, to make sure that uh, I'm not just sitting at my desk in the same room for 24 hours a day. Um, I guess for me too, another interesting thing has been uh, I've the redistribution of some of my work. So I was in I'm a postdoc at the University of Cambridge, so I do uh, quite a bit of lab work as part of my day-to-day job, um, and that disappeared completely. It's coming back a bit now, but it was interesting because I found that the lockdown was was a good time to to build skills in other areas that I'd been neglecting a little bit. So, for example, for me, I really wanted to learn coding, and uh, so I I kind of used the opportunity of of working from home to explore some of the online resources like Coursera and Code Academy and and really build my data analysis and presentation skills, which has been really tremendously beneficial going back now because as I get more results, it's easier to, to present my data in really attractive ways. Has anybody else learned a new skill during lockdown or during the, the redistribution, I guess, of your day-to-day life? Yes. So I've taken a couple courses online as well. Um, So, you know, with me being a data scientist, we always have to be learning new skills because, you know, there's often, you know, new tools out there, there are new algorithms, sometimes even new programming languages and stuff. So, you know, I've been using this time to kind of learn some of the newer stuff and even like brush up on some of the old things. Um, In addition to just career related. I've also done some of the fun things like um, I'm a photographer um, for fun, but you know, it's all self-taught. So I was like, well, you know, there's a couple free online courses. So why don't I try that? So I've done some of that as well. Um, it's been nice uh, because, you know, I've like an hour long commute. So I've just kind of refactored that hour of time into taking courses online. Another thing I would mention is so for me, what's been interesting is that I changed jobs in the middle of pandemic. Um, so I used to work for ETM um, as a specialist data scientist, and now I'm a data science manager at Accenture. Um, so it's been kind of an interesting challenge to undertake because, you know, when we first started the pandemic, you know, I already had relationships with my coworkers, so I could just kind of keep going. Um, starting a new job, you know, when you haven't met people face to face, it's a very different interaction, even if you're interacting with them online versus if you've met them in person. So, you know, I'm trying a lot of like WebEx meeting with the camera on and, you know, before starting the meeting, having five minutes discussion about, hey, so, you know, what are you doing on the weekend or what are your interests to kind of build that relationship with coworkers? But it's, it's very different from, you know, if I hadn't met my coworkers face to face before the pandemic started. 
That must have been so challenging trying to do a job search and switch in the middle of a pandemic um, because all of those processes are are based around kind of face-to-face interviews and stuff, I imagine, as well, right? Yeah, I think it was, you know, there were good and bad parts to job search. Um, so, you know, normally you go in for like a full day on-site interview. So during my full day on-site interviews, it was all virtual. So I didn't even get to see like any of the job sites. Um, But it was interesting because I felt like I got to learn a little bit more about my coworkers because um, oftentimes, you know, where people are sitting in their home, you you can tell a lot about that because some people had like a lot of sports team banners and other people had a lot of like science posters in their background in their room. So you kind of learn a little bit about the interests of your coworkers just by observing their background um, during the onsite interview, which are virtual on-site interview, which you don't get if you're meeting them face-to-face in the office. It's wonderful and a pleasure that we have some time today with uh, Dr. Amara. We had a little bit of uh, background in terms of his work in the French research area, as well as his current responsibilities in the area of nonprofit organization. well, I'm curious to hear as we get into this segment uh, is that uh, journey between uh, building new things in the world of advanced technologies and um, bringing them into practice, and what are the kinds of challenges, uh, Dr. Amara, that you've seen in building teams uh, to do things in the physical world with abstract ideas, and then to learn uh, how that's taken you into the world that you're living in today of maybe greater complexity in terms of some of the challenges that are facing us uh, in the world that we're here. I was going to ask uh, Aisha to uh, jump in with some questions to get us started on how you got into the fields uh, that you have been exploring. Yeah, so I'm actually very excited to hear about when did you first encounter engineering and what drew you to the subject? Okay. So this is a very interesting question. So uh, when I was in in, in the college and uh, when I finished my homework, I really liked listening to the radio and I was impressed by this box, which can transmit voice, music, and give information about what is happening uh, in the world. So uh, it was uh, the only technological device we had at the time Uh, Very few families uh, had television. And I wanted to understand understand, uh, how it works. And that's how I ended uh, ended up studying electronics uh, engineering in uh, the University of Oran in Algeria. Okay, great. Um, So so you grew up in Algeria. So what um, inspired you to come to France? And how did you make that transition? Uh, first, I would like to clarify, I was born in Morocco. Oh, really? Okay. I was born in Morocco. Yeah. Okay. And I did a good part of my primary studies there. And then my uh, then the whole family moved to Algeria, where I did my uh, high school uh, and university studies. I graduated in electronics from the University of uh, Technology of uh, Oran. Oran is a big city, the second city in Algeria located in the west of Algeria. And uh, I did my military service in the Navy and I joined the University of uh, Sidi Belabes. It's uh, 
uh, around 80 kilometers far from uh, from Oron, uh, where I held the positions of uh, deputy head of the physics department uh, the first year. Uh, then I was promoted head of the physics department the next year, and then head of the Electronics Institute of the University of Sidi Belabes. Uh, which has so far trained thousands of engineers. And I decided after that to, to, move, to, to move to France. Uh, the motivations was to, come to pursue with a PhD in France. That's what my motivation, because I decided, I decided to, to become a professor and a researcher. And uh, it's mandatory uh, in this world to, to, to have the PhD. <laughs> That's what. That's why I ended up in France. Okay. So, um, what was uh, what was the cultural difference like for you to do some higher studies in France versus some in Algeria? I think there is not a big uh, cultural difference because Al Algeria was occupied uh, by France for 130 years, and there is a big impact on the French culture. On, uh, on Algerian people. So when I moved to France, I didn't really see a big, big difference, uh, uh, big difference in terms of, uh, okay. in terms of culture. So I, uh, I adapt very, very quickly. And when I was in, uh, in Morocco, uh, I, I was in, uh, uh, in a school, in primary school that was run by, uh, by French okay. people. So. I started my studies in, in French, in fact, okay. <laughs> the beginning in French okay. language. Great. So um, what um, compelled you to pursue the PhD? Uh, so that's, uh, I, as I uh, pointed before, I was a teacher at the University of Sidi Belabes and uh, in addition, holding positions of responsibility during the three years uh, there. I spent there and decided, as I mentioned already, to uh, pursue a career in uh, uh, research, in teaching and research. And it's, uh, it's essential to have a, a PhD. So I was interested in the design of uh, integrated circuits and it's a natural continuity when, uh, when you have a degree in, uh, in electronics and when you have some practice in electronics. So I tried to set up a doctoral problem in this field in, uh, the, in my university, but it was not at that time possible to find experts uh, in integrated circuit design. Uh, it finally ended as a doctoral program in physics. So the program worked well, really, and several teachers at Sidi Belabes graduated from, uh, from this program. As I was interested by integrated circuit design, I decided to move abroad to prepare a PhD in this field at the University of Jussieu in, uh, in Paris. That's why I decided to, to go to Paris. Okay, great. Um, so what was exciting about these topics at that time? And what kind of future did you see for yourself working in this field? I think the, it was in the 80s. It was in the 80s and the... Uh, Microelectronics was really booming at the time, and it was uh, uh, it was kind of fashion. <laughs> and there are the the, the the industry in France was uh, we had many uh, 
companies, uh, all the companies in France, uh, they had a department on IC design. I can uh, talk about IBM, for example. We had IBM close to Paris. They had the big uh, design center there. Uh, Thomson, what we call now Thales, they had also a big design center at that time. Uh, ST Microelectronics, I think the name was different at, at the time, but uh, now it's known as ST Microelectronics. So it was really very, it was very easy to, to have students uh joining this uh this uh this research and the, the, this uh, course attending these courses uh because they were uh, really very uh sure to, to to get a job at the end the the, the activity was very strong in this field in uh, in france at uh, at that time Okay. So you also worked at IBM, correct? Um, so what was it like to work for industrial research lab versus an academic institute? Yeah, this is, uh, that's, it, it was a really uh, a good experience. And uh, it's a funny story for me because uh, uh, I was at the end of my thesis uh, in Paris and my advisor uh, received the funding from uh, the CEA. The CEA is a research center in atomic energy in France. It's, it's a very famous research uh, uh, agency. Uh, so he received the funding to, to develop integrated circuits that are resistant to radiation. And the most sensitive component uh, in this kind of uh, systems is, uh, is the, the memory. And there were no experts in, in memory design in, in the group. So he sent me to IBM Corbeil-Son, which is 30 kilometers from the center of Paris, in the memory design uh, department. So I could understand and learn how to design memories uh, with uh, this group. So I spent uh, six months there uh, working with the advanced CMOS technologies and designing memories. And then uh, when I came back to the uh, to the lab, I transferred my knowledge to to the team, and they uh, we designed uh, memory. But I was not associated with the. Uh, it was really confidential at the time. I was not directly associated with uh, the how to to make the memory uh, uh, radiation uh, resistant. Uh, but uh, uh, after uh, after some time, they explained to me how they simply transformed my design. They transformed only the the uh, access transistors of the of the, the memory cell to make it uh, robust to high radiation conditions. So that's uh, my story with the with the industry, and in fact. Uh, for me, it was a good experience because we learned different. Uh, we learned different ways uh, to to make to to make uh, to to make uh, design IC design, uh, and I can say that it was really more for me comparing to 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 the rhythm of my work at the university. Uh, I was more relaxed than working in the university. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a funny, funny story. So I went there uh, 
as a spy to understand how they are designing <laughs> memories and transfer the, the knowledge to, 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 my, to the team. But even IBM, they, they were aware that I was there for, for, the, for this uh, knowledge transfer. <laughs> Okay, so um, um, since you felt, I guess, more relaxed at IBM, what made you um, not continue to work at IBM and go to academic again? There must be something very exciting about academic for you, right, that made you come back to that? I think, uh, first of all, I, I want uh, sharing my knowledge with, uh, with young, uh, young people. I want uh, teaching. I want explaining uh, things. And uh, the research part also was very was very uh, motivating for me because uh, you learn a lot when uh, when you you work with the PhD students or with master's students. You still continue to learn with them. <laughs> we learn, in fact, with the students. They 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 learn from from us, and we learn also a lot from the from them. This was a big motivation for me to go back to to the uh, academic side. Okay, great. So, um, Hadi, um, you've actually worked with Dr. Amara in some of his present roles. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, where your um, where your work overlaps and you know what that experience has been like? Yeah, thank you, Aisha. Um, actually, I was um, I had this pleasure to working with uh, Dr. Amara in past three years almost. So, when um, during his uh, uh, work as a uh, president elect and now as a president, uh, president elect and uh, president. So, uh, actually, uh, I saw his uh, uh, personal very very. Uh, dedicated to a, a strategic plan that he was actually uh, maybe uh, you know in later this podcast we can hear more from uh, Dr. Amara about that one so it was very very uh, dedicated and very interesting uh, of his work uh, about what will be the future of the CAS and the making uh, directions uh, very very well defined for the members so his dedication his uh, time and uh, his effort for the cast society and members especially you know it was uh, amazing i uh, was actually learning a lot from him uh, you know especially during the meetings and also the you know both in person we had a very very uh, actually, fantastic meetings in Sapporo in Japan during the ISCAS uh, last year. So it was a three days, uh, very intense meetings. We discussed a lot about the what will be the you know uh, a strategic plan for the uh, um, uh, CAS and the whole society. So um, actually, I want I want to uh, you know uh, use this opportunity also ask uh, him now uh, some questions about the you know how uh, Amara I would like to ask you how you define you know um, I CAS you know maybe you can explain it for the other people out of the CAS uh, society uh, what is the vision for the CAS and how you define it. Uh... 
CAS is a, a community. For me, CAS is a community of uh, excellent uh, scientists uh, worldwide. We have uh, a wide spectrum uh, of topics uh, covering new paradigms in uh, emerging technologies, uh, applications, and uh, theoretical foundations. I think these are uh, well described in our strategic plan. Uh, CAS also is uh, a society, it's an old society that uh, uh, spin off uh, another society, a very famous society, which is Solid uh, State Circuit Society. Uh, and we spin off also the, the Council on Electronic Design Automation. These are uh, our babies and there are very successful society and, uh, and council. And CAS also is a society that is very healthy with a good reserve. We have almost 14 million US dollar reserve and we are making benefit every year. But we are also, it's a, it's a society that is also in investing a huge part of its surplus in, in programs that, that help to grow our membership support our chapter activities and our members uh, everywhere. I, I think I will have the opportunity uh, to, during this uh, podcast to talk more about uh, uh, all the initiatives we are launching uh, uh, thanks to the, uh, to, the health, to the financial health of uh, the society. Oh, that's great. Uh, thank you, Amara. So let's come back a bit you know, maybe a few decades. Uh, uh, can you tell us when you, for the first time, know about IEEE? Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I think it was during my thesis that I uh, understood the importance of uh, IEEE as a, a global knowledge bank. Uh, when you have chosen the world of engineering, it's quite normal uh, that you become an IEEE member to take advantage of all the services that are provided by IEEE to, to all the members. At the beginning, I was really uh, a passive member at the beginning. But uh, after a while, the IEEE France section was suffering from a lack of volunteer. And uh, Christine Nora, uh, she was the president at the time of uh, the France section. She, she launched the call uh, to IEEE France members to, uh, to join her to revitalize the section. I responded positively to, to her call and joined the section. And a few times later, maybe a few, few months later, I co-founded the, the CAS France chapter with another colleague. Uh, and then I held several positions as vice president of, uh, of the section, the French section. And finally, I was uh, elected chair of the IEEE France section for the term 2016-2018. So uh, before really playing the role I am playing now in uh, and having this position, uh, in CAS, I was really very, very active at uh, the section, uh, at the section level, and at, at the chapter level in France. I'm one of the co-founder of the CAS chapter. That 
one year, uh, one or two years after, was uh, awarded the best chapter of the year of the year 2014. Uh, no, 2004. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I. Uh... Uh, I remember actually uh, at the beginning of the my uh, uh, actually know about the IEEE circuit and system. I knew you from the ISCAS uh, that you were uh, actually a general chair in Paris, and that one was of was one of the uh, actually biggest ISCAS uh, ever. So uh, yeah, I remember well, and it was a nice legacy. Uh, from yourself uh, uh, to the cast members. Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Amara. Yeah. So, yeah. This, uh, was in, this was in 2010, and it was really a wonderful experience. Yeah, in that, in that. So, 2010 was uh, my first year that I knew exactly 10 years ago. Uh, I knew about the Circuit and System Society. So that was uh, actually uh, good to know. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So. Uh, yeah, it was exactly uh, exactly one year before joining uh, the PhD with uh, Franco Maloberti. So I was ex- during my oh. master, and uh, in 2011 I started with your very good friend uh, Franco Maloberti as a PhD student. So yeah, yeah, very good friend, and he was he was there in 2010. Yes, so yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, so Amara, uh, as a uh, uh, maybe members of the caste society they like to know about the we know uh, we have a lot uh, uh, you know we are working hard for the members so uh, can you explain a bit the what is the benefit of uh, uh, what is the benefit of the uh, you know members for the you know joining the caste society in particular for the young uh, professionals you know we know that uh, the CAS and uh, IEEE can have a significant impact on their career. So can you uh, just tell us some few words about that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So as you know, Hadi, we, we have a wide range of, uh, of conferences where members can, uh, can meet and, uh, and network. This is a good opportunity for uh, young members to, to attend uh, these uh, conferences. And as you know, uh, in our flagship conferences, we organize also some specific event uh, targeting uh, women. Uh, we call it YCAS, Women in CAS, and uh, and YP. And you are organizing the same event uh, in ICECS the, this year. So this is a very nice event. We started uh, organizing it, I think, in 2008 or something like that. And it's a, a sustainable event because it's very, very successful. We offer also uh, the opportunity to, to, to our members, uh, whatever their age, <laughs> to, to publish in our, uh, in our journals. And you know that our journals, they have a very good impact factor. We organize also, uh, during our flagship conferences, we organize mentoring sessions uh, we invite uh, professors uh, to to give advices and to to speak with the to talk with the the young uh, the the young uh, members that are attending the conference. It's uh, in general in the form of uh, of a lunch and free discussion with the, 
between the senior members and the, and the, uh, and the young members. Uh, as a cast member, you have also access to all our publications free, free of charge. You can have access to our publication free of charge. You can access also to our research center free of charge. Uh, and uh, for the researchers who are interested in data science, and I know that Aisha is an expert in the data science, we have what we call IEEE data port which provides access to all IEEE uh, the data port data, data sets. And any member of, uh, of our society working in the field of data science can uh, benefit from, uh, I think, two, ter two, terabyte, uh, uh, two terabyte to store or to, to post uh, his or her uh, data sets there to be used by the community. We have also special scholarship opportunities for young, uh, for young, young students, uh, student members. We provide also student travel awards. And I know that this year we, we more than doubled this grant to, to cover uh, more students than, than, than before. And as you know, Hadi, we have also special student discounts on CAS conferences and workshops. Uh, including the CAS workshops in emerging technologies. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you, uh, Amara. So maybe uh, just also, um, I know uh, maybe for our, uh, uh, actually those that they are listening this podcast, maybe uh, uh, you can uh, mention also about the CAS activities during uh, the COVID. I know a couple of them, but I'm sure it's more than them. For example, the startup competitions, uh, you know, with the COVID topic and as well as the um, distinguished lecturer events that, uh, you know, we are actually uh, having this time. So maybe you can uh, tell us more about the activity during this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh... You know that we have an outreach program. Uh, as I mentioned, part of our uh, our uh, surplus, annual surplus, are reinvested in uh, in outreach programs, and we launch a call, and everyone, every member can can contribute to the uh, to this outreach program. So I submitted a, a project on entrepreneurship, uh, which was oriented at the beginning on. Uh, uh, on sustainable digital uh, sustainable development goals from the United uh, from the United Nations. This we were targeting this uh, these goals uh, to, to targeting uh, startups that are involved in uh, developing solutions for this these sustainable development goals. And the, the COVID nineteen pandemic arrived. <laughs> And I noticed that a lot of startups and laboratories were trying to develop solutions to fight uh, against this pandemic. So this is why we have oriented the competitions toward uh, COVID-19, but we with the condition that the solutions uh, proposed are simple, easy to implement, easy to scale, and cheap, so and really cheap, so that we can deploy them in developing countries. We were targeting really developing countries. 
So we received the 12 projects which are being evaluated by a panel of experts from the technical, the, the medical and the, the business fields. We, I have seen some emails uh, sent by, uh, by our uh, operational office to the, to the experts to start today. We, they will start today the evaluation process. And it's important also to stress that this project has been developed in close collaboration with the IEEE Entrepreneurship Initiative. And they helped a lot. In, they advertised it in their own website. And I would like to take this opportunity to, to thank Thomas Monaco and his team for their efficient support. In parallel, we also launched a COVID-19 students' com uh, competition, and we also received a lot of uh, lot of proposals from uh, from students. Good quality proposals, in fact, that are also being evaluated by uh, by uh, a committee. These are the, the two main initiatives, and in parallel, as I mentioned at the beginning, we uh, we. Uh, we uh, reorganized our distinguished lectures uh, program and uh, created these three clusters I talked about, uh, the one on uh, AI and uh, machine learning, the second one on bio devices and application, and the third one that is going to start in September on, uh, on uh, analog IC design. So we try to adapt as much as we can to this uh, new yeah, situation. That's fantastic. Uh, so uh, my last question, I just I don't want to take uh, you know uh, your time here. My last question is, um, you know, maybe you also uh, tell us more about the uh, the CAS strategic plan or let's say the horizon for the CAS uh, that we have in the next few years. And also, uh, you know, I would like to hear, I know in a, in a meetings, you always uh, have a, a stress on, uh, you know, involving bringing IEEE to Africa. And you and we know you've been in a Morocco and Algeria. So uh, where Africa has placed, you know, in the our strategic uh, strategic plan? Uh, I think, it, as you know, it's uh, important for each organization to, to have a visibility uh, for uh, the few years uh, forward. So we started this process uh, of designing our 2020-2024 strategic plan in March 2018. Uh, I was beginning my term as uh, president-elect. Uh, we organized five XCOM workshops, uh, one meeting with the long-term uh, strategic committee, and I was chairing, uh, and one day workshop with all the members of uh, the Bog uh, of Governors. And you mentioned uh, this meeting, uh, Hadi, that we had uh, in Sapporo, this full day meeting with all the Board of Governors uh, members. I also met uh, regularly with uh, an expert in strategic planning who helped us in the methodological, uh, methodological aspects. So at the end of this event, we were able to, to agree on our new mission. We revised our mission, we revised our vision, and we have now a new mission and uh, a new vision, which we aligned with the uh, technical and societal 
objectives of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal, what we call the UN SDGs. So we have developed also values for our, uh, so that all our members can refer to these values. I'm not going to mention all these values, but the first one is scientific excellence, leadership, global education and professional growth. I think during my term, we will give a huge importance to this global education and professional uh, growth. Inclusion participation also is very, uh, it's very important and, and I will personally take care of this uh, to implement this, uh, to respect this, uh, this value, integrity and ethical behavior, accountability and transparency. And finally, this is also very important and you are mentioning it for the first time in our strategic plan, service to humanity. It's our duty, I think, to, to it's the duty of everyone to provide service, any organizations to, to, to provide the service to humanity, especially to underserved countries. We also define strategic, global strategic area due to the belief that our society must go beyond its borders to be perceived as a society with social responsibility in addition to scientific excellence. So we define three strategic uh, global areas. The first one is technical excellence and inspiration. So we need not only to be excellent, but we need to inspire young people and the next generation. Uh, provide good service to our members. This is also a condition we need uh, to, to implement. The, the third one uh, is reach out, go beyond our border, inspire and empower uh, people, especially in, in underserved, underserved countries. So concerning the, the technical strategic, uh, uh, strategic area, and given the strong multidisciplinary of our society, which is illustrated through uh, 14 uh, technical committees, we have focused our technical strategy on first encouraging the emergence of new paradigms which govern the engineering of circuit and system. Involvement in various, uh, in various circuits and systems applications, such as the Internet of Things, smart cities, health and livelihood, sustainable agriculture, sustainable energy, and so on. And be active also in the development of all the theoretical foundations which support these applications and the new paradigms we, we will work on. So these are the three directions in the technical field that will govern uh, our activities in the next five years. Uh, in addition to that, and that's what you did, uh, Hadi, with your division uh, in Sapporo, each division was asked to work on the definition of three strategic initiatives they want to launch for this uh, uh, five coming years, and the definition of long-term objectives, the definition of the associated metrics, what are the actions, what are the projects that can help to, to reach, to implement these uh, objectives, and what are the resources that are uh, needed also to implement them. So we have now a clear vision on what we, we want to do and a clear vision where we are 
uh, going and what what we want uh, uh, to reach. And finally, to facilitate the achievement of our overall objectives, we have defined three fundamental levers, uh, which are proximity to our members, be very, very close to our members, digital communication and marketing. And we are start, we started already many initiatives in this, uh, in this uh, field and going beyond our borders. And this brings me be going beyond our borders. This bring me to the uh, to Africa. Uh, uh, we have a big issue, in fact, at uh, has IEEE organization with uh, reaching uh, Africa people. Uh, I would like to give you some numbers. So uh, IEEE has four hundred twenty thousand members, almost half a million members all around the world. Only 1.4% of our members are located in uh, Africa. The worst is our society. CAS has 12,000 members worldwide, and only 0.5% are CAS members in Africa. So we need to change these features. We need to change these numbers. We have a large continent in Region 8, but IEEE doesn't have a strong presence there. IEEE launched a few years ago an Africa initiative, but I don't know this there is any impact and this is not really working, uh, working very well. Uh, the first initiative we was launched by Professor Jose Silva Martinez, who is former member of uh, our BOG, who took the initiative, initiative with the support of CAS, of course, to launch a symposium in Ghana called WETCAS. And this is the third year I think they are organizing this uh, workshop. We are supporting financially also this workshop. And this year, we, uh, this year, we launched an initiative in the field of education. We have set up an ad hoc committee chaired by uh, Jose, who is currently working in partnership with seven universities in Africa to, de to design virtual tutorials with the uh, hands-on uh, hand, uh, uh, approach. These tutorials will be made available to all African universities and to all underserved countries all around the world through our uh, resource uh, center. Uh, I also launched, uh, submitted a project in collaboration with the humanitarian center of the University of Geneva uh, to uh, allow refugees uh, from the largest, largest camp of refugees in, in the world, which is located in Kenya, and who have a sufficient level, education level, to take uh, online courses provided by uh, Geneva University, have access uh, to a fab lab. We are going to set up a fab lab there in, uh, within, uh, within the camp so that they can join a uh, university later and continue their, uh, their studies. We have also appointed uh, Jose as ambassador for Africa, and uh, he has a budget to travel and visit universities or to attend local events and advertise on our society and help people create, uh, set up uh, CAS activities uh, 
in Africa. So all this fall in uh, the framework of caste strategy, in particular, go, as I mentioned before, go beyond our borders, service, service to humanity, and rely on global education. And finally, in terms of global education, we have uh, the ambition to group all our uh, education uh, uh, activities like uh, distinguished lecture, industry distinguished lecture. We've launched also a new initiative on micro learning, seasonal schools, ebooks, uh, within an institute of uh, global, CAS Institute of Global Education. Uh, reason why we will focus on also on the improvement of our resource center we have, uh, by designing a more friendly interface and by having a chatbot, chatbot to get the users and to help them find quickly what they are looking for. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Amara, for joining us for this uh, podcast. It was a great pleasure to uh, hearing uh, about the CAS activities uh, from uh, yourself and looking forward for the more and more uh, in future. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure. The Ari Cafe podcast is brought to you with generous support from the IEEE Sensors Council and the IEEE Circuits and Systems Society. Our hosts are Hadi Haydari, Hamida Halil, Nicole Wackman, Bruce Hacht, and me, Aisha Yusuf. Ari Cafe is produced by Joseph Friedman. Our theme music is by Stephen LaRosa of Wonderboy Audio. Special thanks to our incredible guest, Dr. Amara Amara, and see you guys next time.